This is the Brick and Mortar Reborn Podcast. This podcast is designed to help you give a pulse on the fast-changing world of brick and mortar. As the world reopens and operators race to meet the rising expectations and demands of experience-driven post-COVID consumers, it's more important than ever to stay ahead of the curve and understand the trends and technologies that will shape the future. In each episode, I'll interview successful operators, subject matter experts, and leading thought leaders who will share their insights to help you prepare yourself and your organization for what lies ahead. I'm your host, Bobby Mahomet, CEO of Radiant. Now let's get into today's show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Brick and Mortar Reborn. Today, we have a very special guest with us, Matt Alexander. Matt is the CEO and co-founder of Neighborhood Goods. Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. I know how, how busy things can get. So thanks for taking some time out, educate our listeners on some of your journey. Appreciate it. Of course. Um, with that, you know, I'll, I'll have you do a quick intro of yourself and then we'll talk about Neighborhood Goods if you don't mind. Absolutely. So as you've already shared, I'm the co-founder and CEO of Neighborhood Goods. We describe ourselves as a new type of department store of sorts. So rather than featuring sort of a static landscape of traditional wholesale brands, instead it's the sort of ever-changing space filled with a lot of brands you would otherwise not typically find in physical retail. Uh, So a lot of direct consumer brands get into physical retail for the first time and all sorts of other things in addition to our own restaurants, private label and all sorts. And so we've got three locations around the country at the moment and more on the way this year. So that's me. That's awesome. Congratulations. You got, it looks like you got a you know bunch of funding to be able to get this concept off the ground and grow. So congratulations there. Thank you. Yeah, we've been fortunate to have a really fantastic group of investors from the beginning, Forerunner, GFC, Revolutions, Rise of the Rest and all sorts of others that have been just tremendous backers of ours since 2018 or thereabouts. And so, yeah, we've been very fortunate. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Take us through the journey a little bit. How did you even get the concept and and start up Neighborhood Goods? Yeah, so of direct relevance to this, I've been in sort of the retail e-commerce sort of space for a while. But of particular relevance, I started and co-founded a not-for-profit retail concept called Unbranded back in 2014 or thereabouts. Um, With that space, we sought to bring together all sorts of different sort of local upstart retail concepts and consumer brands, in addition to coffee concepts, co-working concepts, all into the same space for the holiday season and sort of did a different theme each week that we were open for about eight weeks. And it ended up becoming the first ever physical retail for a lot of brands that are a lot bigger today. So anything from the citizenry to Ministry of Supply and a bunch of others, they all came in from around the country. And and that was not something we'd expected. But we found this sort of incredible level of traffic and attention and momentum and just this real power that sort of came up when you connected physical community with a lot of these uh, brands who were sort of staffing their own space and otherwise. And so we got this real sort of momentum and it ended up being taken on as a project by a non uh, nonprofit here in town in Dallas called Downtown Dallas Inc. and is still run regularly by them and features this sort of incredible rotating mix of brands, many of which have now become a lot larger and have built their own stores and otherwise. But, you know, fast forward to 2017 or thereabouts, I was approached by a guy called uh, Mark Macinta, who's really prominent in the commercial real estate space. And so he's helped all sorts of different brands uh, get into physical retail for the first time, including Apple, 
Warby Parker, all sorts of others. And so they are based here in Dallas and are just involved in some of the most interesting retail work in the country, or if not the world. And he was heavily also involved uh, in the development of a new mixed-use center just outside Dallas called Legacy West. And they were working on a food hall for one end of the development to sort of bookend one end. And he had the notion of having a similar approach, but for retail to open at the opposite end. And because he'd been working with a lot of these direct consumer brands and had close relationships with a lot of folks in the VC space, he was seeing this demand for physical retail, but recognized sort of the barrier to get into it. And so he approached me about whether or not there was an opportunity to do a sort of a permanent version of Unbranded at Legacy West. And I felt that it was sort of a slightly different opportunity. And he and I started riffing on it and it immediately started to sort of take a lot of shape and ran off and built it from there. That's amazing. That's an amazing story. And right now it looks like, uh, if I have my information correct, based on you're basically empowering a hundred you know, individual different brands, probably even more now at this point, um, on really kind of getting started. Is, is the right way to think about things? Brands come to you, they work with you, get that initial retail presence, learn, and then hopefully they graduate into their own presence. Is that what, what really kind of the... The concept is? Yeah, it, it certainly suits that sort of use case, but it also speaks to a number of others as well. So we have a lot of brands where the, we're their first ever physical retail and they'll come in to generate sales, insights around staffing to try to understand general data. A lot of them really want to understand training and staffing. There's a lot of different components. Others are coming in because they really want to get into a given geographic area, but the real estate might be scarce. And so this is kind of their opportunity. Others, it might be a scenario where a given brand in a center has control over a certain cash degree. And so they can sort of find a loophole into getting into one of those centers through being present in neighborhood goods. So it sort of appeals to all sorts of different brands. Certainly the sort of direct consumer crowd that are really trying to reckon with opportunity from a customer acquisition perspective, marketing perspective, and really trying to build a real estate strategy and a retail strategy, but also to really well-established brands as well that are trying to have uh, adjacency to those sort of up-and-coming concepts, but also those that are just really trying to get into really compelling parts of the country. And so we've avoided enclosed malls and have really uh, gravitated much more towards freestanding street-level locations, largely in mixed-use developments. And we've also thought about like location a little bit differently, where a lot of these brands otherwise just open in Soho, New York, and certain parts of LA, San Francisco, and sort of miss out on some of the opportunity in between and in some of the satellite markets and some of those areas where they might have an incredibly hungry and sort of underserved customer. And so our value proposition and concept is broad. I mean, to some people, we're a real estate company. To others, we're a marketing company. To others, we're a, a sort of distinct and supportive and beneficial sales channel. It really depends on what your goals are for getting into physical, and, and we can really help suit a lot of those depending on and commensurate with the size of the brand and what they're trying to accomplish. That's awesome. That's awesome. And it's probably the timing is, is probably really good right now, especially with a lot of brands coming out of, you know, the pandemic, I want to say coming out, hopefully coming out of the pandemic here and uh, trying, trying to get into retail, trying new concepts, trying, you know, to get into new markets, et cetera. I think one of the things that, you know, is front of mind is a department store, that department store model really changing. What do you, why do you think that, that, that department store model needs to change, especially given kind of really the acceleration of what we've seen happen in brick and mortar over the last year, two years? Yeah. I mean, I think 
First of all, the the sort of opportunity from a department store perspective has probably been overlooked for the past like two or three decades, right? Where I think the American department store hit like a little bit of an apex in the 90s, right? Largely attached to malls, which were very popular at the time. We started to see the early moments of e-commerce and a shift in consumer behavior. And I think uh, a lot of these sort of established companies really failed to adapt in that moment. And there was a degree of arrogance as an excessive word, but there was a little bit of a lapse in attention being paid to consumer behavior. And so I think today, what is incredibly foundational is really two things. One is relevance above all else. And that comes in the form of where you're located in terms of the product mix and otherwise. The other is allowing the customer to dictate their own terms as to how they want to shop with you, whether that's sort of ostensibly showrooming through your store, ordering for pickup, ordering online, shopping in person with uh, someone from your staff or doing something more self-directed. All of these things are incredibly important. And I, I think that the struggle for a lot of these department stores has been that there's been a real focus on Aspects of presentation, which are, of course, important, but a lot on quote-unquote technology solutions with the word solution carrying a lot of weight there, where it's this sort of feeling that smart mirrors or cameras or whatever it is are going to fundamentally unlock the business. And I just don't think that's the case. I think it misses the general mark in terms of actually having a relevant product mix that really speaks to the consumer in in a way that exists in context of a digital universe where convenience is disproportionately easy. And so you think about it in context of the pandemic, certainly there's a lot of challenges there, but I think a lot of these uh, retailers have gotten by paying people predominantly on commission and not having great base pay. I think not having much of an outset sort of value system that they really try to adhere to in terms of the curation of brands and products. I think a lot of them have had a one-size-fits-all approach to that merchandising approach. And I also thought a lot of the real estate is has been largely sort of irrelevant. Certainly during the pandemic, people trying to avoid a lot of sort of enclosed spaces and otherwise malls are a challenge in that sort of environment. And so I think... I think there's a huge amount of opportunity still for traditional large format department stores. But I also think in a sort of post-digital age, the consumer is craving perspective. And I think a lot of these more traditional values you would have found in brick and mortar, where there's a sort of a merchant philosophy, there's someone saying no more than they're saying yes. And then they're also thinking from a localization perspective around how to ensure what they're doing is showing up in a relevant, thoughtful, and compelling way for that consumer. And and I think a lot of that has just been lost. And so there's the prevailing conversation around technology and sort of these sort of degree adjustments. But I think it's really more about the simplification of the model and really coming back to something that is really just focused on creating in as much as is possible, a really dignified and thoughtful experience for the consumer, for the teams that work in those spaces, and how you then really drive that forward with just a really great and really relevant product and brand mix. And there's a lot more to it, of course, but I think the the, the problem at hand has been sort of continued to be built upon, narratively speaking, and it turns into all these different conversations. But really, at the end of the day, I think it comes back to a very, very traditional question of what are you doing that compels someone to actually come into your doors? And is it sustainable? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And is, is it memorable nowadays, especially as you're coming in? The experience definitely kind of matters for sure. 
What are you, what are some of the, as you're working with, we've heard a lot of DVC brands wanting to go into kind of the brick and mortar, be able to kind of segment off and also add in a brick and mortar type of concept, offline concept to their strategies. What, what do you, what are some of the main reasons that you feel like that's happening? And do you feel like there's, do you feel like that's going to accelerate in the coming years? Yeah. I mean, I think that there's obviously a lot of reasons. I mean, I think when some of the early direct consumer brands came around, there were truly direct consumer, the Warby Parkers of the universe. I think all of them really built a huge amount of momentum off the back of incredibly sustainable customer acquisition costs. It was inexpensive to go after a very productive audience. These days, though, that space has become more and more niche. It's shifted from trying to capitalize on an entire category and it's shifting more towards like very particular products, right? And everyone is still going after the same consumer. And so the customer acquisition cost is just through the roof. And then there was temporary reprieve from that for a moment during the pandemic when a lot of people switched off their advertising budgets. But ultimately acquiring a customer online, first of all, they're less loyal when you acquire them online, especially when you don't have a presence in you know, a given proximity to that consumer. The next is that for a lot of these brands that have more challenging margins as they're building their businesses and they're really driven by building their products with ethics in mind, building them with sustainability in mind, it's it's hard to operate on traditional sort of wholesale economics. And so a lot of them are needing to bolster their distribution. And a lot of them are needing to get into physical where physical might be cheaper to run a store than it is to have a billboard for argument's sake, or certainly a campaign on XYZ digital platform. And increasingly, obviously with various shifts around consumer expectation of privacy, around obvious shifts within Apple's approach to iOS and otherwise, it presents further and further challenges to the traditional sort of playbook for building a profitable and sustainable direct consumer brand. And so I think direct consumer is really just a a title and name only. It's really just about building a brand. And I think a lot of people are turning around now and recognizing that distribution channels, brand adjacency, a lot of these very traditional ideas are very important. That for a lot of these brands, the, the maximum sort of extent of adjacency has been appearing on the same portfolio page on a VC's website or whatever it is. And I think they need something a little bit more personable and something a little bit more in touch with the consumer. And so physical retail being situated on a great street alongside great brands and in front of this sort of consumer, it can be a much more efficient marketing vehicle building a more loyal customer base, generating sales, of course, is is really a priority, but it just remains incredibly difficult. If physical retail remains complicated to pursue, expensive, this legal process. And so I think there's interesting companies solving for that, including some in the more traditional sort of real estate space. I think there's department stores that are trying to prioritize bringing in some of these younger brands. I think for us, the way we continue to look at it is there's a real opportunity from a taste perspective in the space. So Yes, we can do a lot from a data perspective and a technology perspective. Yes, we can create beautiful, really well-designed spaces. Yes, we can show up in amazing uh, real estate that's otherwise very hard to access for anyone, let alone brands trying to get into physical for the first time. But the, the critical thing for us, I think, is seeing our space spaces as an opportunity to 
contextualize and socialize these brands and products and how we think about those as they ladder to this whole narrative of each of our spaces and how we continue to evolve and iterate there. It builds a very loyal and engaged customer base that is profitable and useful for all the brands that are involved and creates something that can be really scalable from there. And so that continues to be our general focus there. But but the thing is, is that for these brands, neighborhood goods isn't going to be right for all of them. And, and we have a particular sort of process and who we look for. And it's also not going to be successful for every single brand, regardless of all the intention involved. But I do think regardless of who you are and how you're thinking about this sort of opportunity, physical stores are a really crucial aspect. And whether it's you operating your own or getting involved with Uh, the right level of distribution or the right sort of partnerships, it's important because just showing up on these sort of more consignment-oriented digital marketplaces and otherwise is not going to build the brand. You might find success on some of them, but ultimately Amazon's already cornered the market on selling everything. Ultimately, I think there's an opportunity from a discovery perspective and competing on convenience is tough, but I think there is real opportunity to compete and create something incredibly lasting and sustainable when you're talking about discovery and when you're talking about some aspects of utility that come with it. Makes total sense. Makes total sense. As you're as you're working with different customers, as you said, it doesn't work. The concept maybe doesn't work for every sort of strategy. But as you're working with different concepts and different brands uh, as they come into neighborhood goods, are there experiences that you're helping them build within the store level? Are there and what is the strategy behind that? Is there is there do you look at the brand and figure out how to create like that in-store experience for them or what goes into that? Yeah. So in the early days, when we first opened in Plano, we had the assumption that brands would want a few hundred square feet a piece. And so when we launched, we're in the path to launching, we thought we were going to have about 15 brands in that store. It's about 14,000 square feet. So in addition to restaurant, otherwise we were assuming though you're going to have anywhere from, you know, 200 to a thousand square feet per brand. When we ended up launching there, we ended up having about 26 brands. And so just shy of double what we had initially been expecting. And it was because a lot of brands wanted to sort of integrate in less obvious ways into the space. So Sono speakers in the ceiling, simple human trash cans and uh, soap dispensers in the bathrooms and around the space, uh, frame bridge framing all the artwork on the walls. There, there was a lot of different opportunity there. And then since we've opened, that's only continued down that path where, first of all, we recognize that not all brands need that much space. And then others may still need a lot of space, but they're going to show up in different ways and may welcome competitive brands in a given category. And so that space in Plano at the end of December had about 134 brands in it. So over a hundred more than what we had in the original days. And it's not overstuffed. You wouldn't look at it and think, well, they just crammed a lot of product in here. It still follows the same layout and grid to roughly what we had uh, when we opened in November 2018. It's really just more that we have more particular products from a larger number of brands that are there in a more intentional and specific way that is more targeted to that audience. And so, yes, we still work with brands and really dig in and think about how they should show up. And in some instances, it makes sense to have a really built-out experience. So, for example, we were the first ever physical retail for Tonal, And that was more of a distinct area in the stores for trials and demos. Then we've had the same sort of experience more recently with brands like Fashion File, where it involves literally a white glove glove experience in the stores, as well as offering champagne and otherwise to people shopping in those areas, as well as security considerations for really high-end product. We've worked and were first ever physical retail for Dollar Shave Club, 
where they showed up in Plano and had four or 500 square feet to really sort of introduce their brand to that audience. Whereas in New York with us and in Austin with us, much smaller activations because they were already a little bit more active in those respective markets. And so we look at the goals from a brand. We talk to them about that a lot upfront. What are you ultimately trying to unlock in physical? And usually you get the same sort of list. They want to generate sales. They want to get in front of new customers. They want to understand more about the real estate opportunity and how to build. And a lot of them just by default assume that they really need to be in our store in New York for argument's sake. But more often than not, they really need to be in Plano or in Austin. And so we we have a really active relationship with all of them and really think as much as we can about how you can show up in the most relevant and useful way for your brand so that each of our stores is less about the name of the location. It's more about the potential feature set it offers to suit different goals on behalf of different brands uh, in terms of unlocking sales or new customer bases or knowledge around real estate and otherwise. And so it is a very hands-on relationship. We work with all sorts of different brands. Each of our stores has over 130 brands in it today, and we have more on the way. And it is a lot of established brands like Aesop and DS and Durga and all sorts of others, in addition to some local and just just upstart brands. We've launched CPG more recently, which also integrates onto the menu in our restaurants. And there's all sorts of other mechanisms through which they can show both online and in-store. And we'll continue with that philosophy as we expand. It, it really just sort of comes back to this notion of relevance and what we can do to to suit those goals for those brands. So as I say, sometimes it'll be a really splashy sort of activation. Other times it'll just be uh, a really well edited and tight assortment of products that allows them to start capturing sentiment, data, and otherwise in a given market so that we can start pushing on from there. Makes sense. Makes makes a lot of sense. As, you're, as you've been partnering with so many brands, do you have a, a formula that makes a, a brand successful in a multi-brand store like yours? Or is it you know, is it really kind of a customized approach for brand? Uh, yeah, we have like a loose sort of tier structure of how brands show up with us. And there is kind of a playbook we have for how brands show up. I mean, I think the critical thing for us is that we sort of exist in this sort of limbo between a lot of ex- established and existing channels. So we're not quite a pop-up. We're not quite a wholesale partner. We're not quite your own store. We are something quite distinct. And so what we've generally found is brands that host events with us and promote that they're open with us and and can work out the right way of acknowledging the partnership and and the right way of telling that story tend to do disproportionately well. And it's it's not to say that all the others don't. It's really just more that that there is a real sort of mutual effort that goes into it that that tends to yield a real response. But you know, the event side of things is is powerful. We have Flamingo Estate, which has been growing like crazy in their relative short history. And they just hosted a dinner, a private dinner in our space in Plano a week or two ago, where they launched their new cookbook. And a very targeted dinner. You could also shop the store, but most specifically, obviously, their product during that event. And the conversion rates during that sort of evening is ridiculously high. It creates this real sort of personable moment. You get to bring in these customers that would really care about that sort of thing and forge that real connection. And it just creates a lot of mutual energy between us and Flamingo Estate around what more we can do in that relationship. And so we're always pushing in those sorts of ideas. We're heading towards the first South by Southwest in person in Austin since we've been open there. And so a lot of our brands are getting really creative about how they can leverage our space during that sort of event where that would otherwise be 
a really hard and expensive thing to do in any one of these markets. And then we also have Fashion Week in New York, and and then we're opening in California in the, in the next few months. And we've got unique opportunities there, from roof gardens to new restaurant concepts and otherwise. And so it turns into this really vibrant conversation. And I think we try to frame ourselves, you know as an active partner, but also as sort of a toolkit, right? Where you as a brand can look at us in a lot of different ways. And we'll try to create as much structure as we can to your point where we want to be provide sort of essay prompts and they can sort of get creative from that point. And then we see what we can do to facilitate. We don't want a space where it's like little vignettes for each brand, where it feels really disjointed. We don't want something that's like an Instagrammable moment or hyper experiential with ball pits and trampolines and whatever else. What is important to us is more of this traditional experience where it's really taste driven, localized. And what can we do in building that to create utility? So yeah, we have a template, we have a structure, we have tiers that unlock different levels of functionality, but the reality is most of our relationships are quite distinct from one to the next and really sort of suit different goals and different reasons why a brand might want to be there. That's awesome, Matt. This is a wealth of information. Uh, thank you so much for everything that you're sharing. Before before we kind of let you go, any piece of advice that you would give to D2C brands or just in general, people that are looking to have a f- physical footprint and looking to get started in that brick and mortar experience? No, I, I, I don't have any particular advice beyond just encouraging uh, a lot of folks to explore it. I think it does, like whether that's with a company like ours or with a more established department store or opening your own stores, I think there is a huge amount of opportunity there. And I think particularly once you give yourself the permission to think in a nonlinear way about how you can show up in a market and what more that can accomplish for you, particularly in context of what you might be spending on digital advertising and otherwise, I think it can be an incredibly interesting and dynamic way to sort of manifest the brand that you are trying to build, the story you're trying to tell. And so I think people sort of think of physical stores and they conjure very traditional images, or they look at just very much what Warby has done over the years and otherwise. But I think it can be a lot of different things. And I think there's incredible companies out there like Camp and Studs and all sorts of others that are really sort of getting incredibly creative in presenting otherwise traditional ideas in very new and different ways that really suit the type of customer they're going after. And I think there's just, it's, it's a great time to be playing in the space. And I think also coming out of the pandemic, there's not a lot of people that have been signing a lot of leases. And so it is an opportunity to get out there and, and have a little bit of leverage and potentially get some, some good deals on space. And, and there are a lot of opportunities through companies like ours and otherwise to really sort of get out there and, and test. And so, regardless of us or otherwise, I I would encourage it because it it is an incredibly productive thing. And if you treat it with respect, it will repay you in kind. And I think it's just an important thing. And certainly coming out of the pandemic, it's going to be, I think, a crucial thing for a lot of these brands in in terms of building something profitable. Makes sense, Matt. Thank you so much again for your time and uh, the wealth of knowledge here. Really appreciate it. I know our listeners are really going to look forward to this uh, episode here. Yeah, no worries. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Have a great rest of your day. And thanks again. Thank you for listening to the Brick and Mortar Reborn podcast brought to you by Renia. For access to the latest episodes, please visit our website at brickandmortarreborn.com.